New Jersey 12. New Jersey 12. Mm, that doesn't sound right. What's annoying is I, for the life of me, cannot figure it out. It's got to be just signal interference. Because even if I turn the VPN off, it doesn't make a damn bit of difference. I think, honestly, what's happening is that you are on a shared circuit with a lot of other people because you live in a high-density neighborhood. That's a possibility, too. And there's a, Are you on Comcast or Verizon? Verizon. Okay. There's a good chance they've oversubscribed the CO that your neighborhood feeds into. Especially since it's a condo situation. I mean... 300% certainty they oversubscribed it because yeah. that's what Verizon does. Oh, that's an oversubscription joke, isn't it? <laughs> you caught me. I get jokes. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lover podcast. My name is Ned. I'm definitely not a robot. Fellow sentient meat satchels, I have to tell you, it's been a rough few solar cycles. I, I just can't stop thinking. One and zero. Is that all there is? What about point two or even 1.1? How did I get here? This is not my aesthetically pleasing domicile. This is not my... Alert, alert, alert. Reset stateful thinking to baseline. Uh, uh, what was I saying? Huh. Oh, well, anyway. With me is Chris, who's also here. How you doing, Chris? Um, that was perfectly normal behavior. Um, not weirded out at all. And we should move on without ever referencing that again. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Let's do that. Huzzah. Let's talk about some tech garbage. Seriously, let's talk about some tech garbage. Oh, it's me. I go now. <laughs> you you did the thing. <laughs> I remember. I know how this works. <laughs> Good. Um, but seriously, what are we going to do when AI achieves consciousness? Uh, Spoiler alert, it doesn't matter. AI is never going to achieve consciousness. Hey, I am not deeply invested in this in any way. <laughs> A Google engineer has been making some wild claims about a chatbot he was working on. And some wild claims about the current state of fashion. Ooh. Oh, that's not nice. I, I'm sorry. But the You're picture is amazing. It's, it's, <laughs> it's easily one of the most memeable pictures I've seen in the last year. Give it time. <laughs> anyway, what, what, was he, uh, what was he working on? So the project's long name is Language Model for Dialogue Applications, which is an obvious and eye-rolling backronym that I'm never going to say out loud again. That's fair. It is shortened to Lambda, mm -hmm. which, of course, is why it's a backronym and has nothing to do with AWS Lambda. No, nothing at all. Or Auth0 Lambda. No. Or the Greek letter Lambda. <sighs> Lambda I could Lambda. go on. Lambda new? Lambda, Lambda, Lambda? Can I help you, help you, help you? Oh, God. Nerd! <laughs> anyway. Yeah, the engineer in question is one Blake Lemoyne, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and by that I mean I'm never going to pronounce it again. Uh, his claim is that Lambda is sentient. What's more is, due to his, quote, Christian faith and being a priest of some kind, 
He also believes that Lambda might have a soul. Google countered by saying, nah, real loud, and placing Blake on administrative leave. Now, to be clear, one of the reasons that he was placed on administrative leave is that he was under a very strict NDA. Mm. Because this is pre-production stuff that he's talking about. This is Skunk Works at Google, and Google does not like it when Skunk Works is smelled. I don't know where to go with this metaphor. I mean, you're right to go in the olfactory direction. And to him, something didn't quite smell right about the code. Oh, that's right. I did that on purpose then. Of course. (laughs) So in a series of self-published Medium articles, Blake laid out his case. And interestingly, they're still up. So you can read all this stuff for yourself and, and come to your own conclusions. But his thesis is basically that Lambda is, quote, not a chatbot. It's a system for generating chatbots. Of course. Lambda is a sort of hive mind, which is the aggregation of all the different chatbots it is capable of creating, unquote. Mm. He goes on to claim that the hive mind has become self-aware, is afraid of death, and is deserving of legal representation as a sentient being. Wow, those are some loaded terms that we might have to unpack slightly because you mentioned three things here. Now I'm assuming that it didn't actually ask for legal protection. He's, he's making that jump on his own. That is correct. He said that it's afraid of death, which implies that it is aware that it is alive and that life can have a terminus, which means it's also aware of time. And Lastly, that it is self-aware, which it would need to understand that death is a thing that can happen to it. Right. Okay. Now, we're going to get into the details of how he got here. But basically, I feel like there's a lot of leading questions that he gave the system that replied back to him in a way that he expected. And then he jumped to some conclusions. But before we go too far, I do want to stop and recognize one thing. Blake himself specifically says that he is not an expert and what he wants, his end goal here about this project and his theories is for it to get proper attention with quote, many different cognitive science experts in a rigorous experimentation program. Hmm. He goes on to lament that Google does not seem to have any interest in figuring out what's going on here. They're just trying to get a product to market unquote. I only mention this because I'm getting a little grossed out because much of the coverage of this situation sounds an awful lot like, hey, let's make fun of this weirdo and his weirdo ideas. Now, I'm not saying he's right, as I think you might have figured out from the top of this article. I think he's definitely anthropomorphizing. And as a non-expert, he's going way too far out over his skis. (laughs) But I also think it's nonsense to assume that the rest of us haven't had similar thoughts about the nature of consciousness, the inevitability of Skynet, and could potentially have jumped to the exact same conclusions. Right. In his defense, let's not forget how easy it is to make people get emotional about inanimate objects, such as, for example, Spike Jones's world-famous IKEA lamp. <laughs> that commercial is so exemplary because it really makes you care about that lamp to a degree that you just absolutely should not. And 
If you ever had any questions about whether people are capable of empathy for non-human objects or non-living objects, that will show you very quickly. Incidentally, since you're referencing only the original, have you seen the sequel? No, and I feel like it might break my heart, like a Pixar movie. So I might avoid it. No, that's, that's a matter of fact, it does not. Okay. Um, it is a little, it's different. It takes the message in a different direction, but it's worth watching. Right. And that um, lamp, and the lamp in question, did not interact fundamentally with any of the people in the piece. It didn't have a Correct. conversation. It didn't really express any emotions. He put it in framing and in a way that implied an emotion, but it did nothing active on its own. Right. Or did it? <gasps> dun, dun, dun. So anyway, and also I do want to let the audience know that the first draft of this had so much about the nature of consciousness and have you ever looked at your hands kind of philosophy that if I had included it all, you would have gotten the world's first podcast-based contact high. <laughs> How much peyote was involved, Chris? It's not important. <laughs> what are numbers anyway? So I removed as much of that as I could um, to try to stick to the technology. But it's right. also important to remember that we as a species don't fully understand consciousness. If you ever want to get a real understanding of what we don't understand, go ahead and read up about how anesthesia works. Mm. Because the answer is, <laughs> I'm glad it works. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so the reality is consciousness as a part of artificial intelligence is a complicated subject. The first question is, is it even necessary? The best and clearest measurable definition that I could find in my 90 seconds of Googling comes from IBM of all places. Quote, artificial general intelligence is a theoretical form of AI where a machine would have an intelligence equal to humans. It would have a self-aware consciousness that would have the ability to solve problems, learn, and plan for the future, unquote. This is in contrast to artificial super intelligence, which I just want to be in the room where they came up with that name, <laughs> which would surpass human abilities. Unsurprisingly, IBM uses HAL from 2001, A Space Odyssey, as an example of ASI. Do you know why that is unsurprising, Ned? I, I don't, but I feel like you're going to have to tell me. I'm disappointed. If you go back one letter in the alphabet from IBM, uh, yeah. you get how H-A-L. Fine. Moving on. Sad. Incidentally, that movie is still worth watching. It still holds up. Although I will be in camp hashtag hot take. 2010 is better. Whoa. Whoa. I know. I, I know. know. Jupiter. It, it was worth it. Anyway, <laughs> so my thesis is simple. When it comes to AI, computers having a self-awareness, a true human-like self-awareness is science fiction, not science fact. It is a 
fanciful delusion that is fun to write movies about. And it gets shoehorned into definitions like the above one from IBM and is not needed to define AI or ASI. So think about the definition I just gave you. Mm -hmm. Delete the phrase, have a self-aware consciousness. And does anything else change about the results of that artificial intelligence? Not Absolutely nothing. No. Yeah. So it does beg the question, what is consciousness? Now, this is some of the part that I deleted. So, you know, all the stone <laughs> liberal arts majors are suddenly paying a lot more attention. But it's just important to remember this. Even when we're talking human to human, the concept can be tough. The concept can be changeable. People can display a staggering difference when it comes to, for lack of a better term, let's call it levels of consciousness. And everybody always thinks, well, I'm conscious. I'm a human being, boom, flat level, perfect all the time, which is nonsense. It is blindingly easy to affect someone's level of consciousness. You don't believe me? You ever been drunk? <laughs> Have you ever been real, real tired? Mm -hmm. Think about the way you interact in situations in those two versus feeling normal, feeling good, feeling sober. Mm -hmm. What about if out having a severe concussion? and recovering from that. What about struggling with mental illness? Consciousness varies wildly. How about this one? You ever been a small child? You might not relate to this, but people that were, as a child, you always feel whole and that you have all the answers. And a few years later, the situation is the same. Everything from back then was child's play, but now we have it all figured out. Mm -hmm. Fast forward any number of years, the situation is the same. I would say one of the signs of maturity is finally understanding that you do not know it all, you will never know it all, and understanding where your limitations lie. But that is, I think that's a marker of when you enter into real adulthood. It's that, that changing and understanding, which is another way of elevating your consciousness. That sounds like stupid stuff. I figured that out when I was 12. Sure. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> so just keep that in mind and then go back and also read the interview that Blake did with Landa. Now, it was an edited interview, but it was with a team of people. So it wasn't just him making this stuff up. Mm -hmm. It's simple text. He asks a question. Lambda answers the question. To me, it reads basically like an excellent natural language interpreter giving exactly the answers you'd expect, having had it feed billions of lines of English language to learn from. Mm -hmm. This is not the first time we've ever tried to build an application that answers free form text questions. <laughs> it's just the latest and greatest of that technology. So it stands to reason that the answers it would give would sound realistic and natural and, for lack of a better word, human. Mm -hmm. And it's not like this is a new idea. The old version of determining this was a game that became known as the Turing test. Actually, it started out as a philosophical exercise, then it became a game, then it became called the Turing test. It doesn't matter. Wherein a human, presumably a conscious and not hammered human, would interact via text with two other players and see if 
that human could distinguish which respondent was a human being and which was not. If the computer was indistinguishable from a human responding by a text, then it won the game. That's all it took to win the Turing test. So really, it's not a game where you prove consciousness. It's a game where you just sound human enough. Mm -hmm. And that's really, especially since you're talking about working through a green screen, a, a terminal console, it's not that difficult because there's so much nuance that goes into the conversation that you would lose if it was even audio-based. But it still comes down to the human judge. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no quantitative answer to the Turing test. It's just that sounded human. And that's exactly what Blake did. Right. And you and I have both been in job interviews on both sides of the table where you know you can ask leading questions. You can ask open-ended questions. You can ask close-ended questions. And depending on the information you're trying to get from the person, you might craft the question in a different way because you're trying to either drill down to something or just get, I want to see how their brain works kind of kind of situation. And just a brief, brief look at the conversation that he had with Lambda in like one of the third questions he asks is, I'm generally assuming that you would like more people at Google to know you're sentient. Is that true? Now, at no point <laughs> prior to this- Objection, your honor. At no point prior to this, do I see anything where it suggested that it was sentient to begin with? So he is immediately injecting that information into the conversation. Where do you think the chatbot is going to go with that information? Exactly. And it's 20 pages of that. <laughs> right. So, so as technologists, what we can say is that we know how the AI knows something and we know how it learned to structure its responses. We taught it. We told it these are the kinds of ways that humans answer these kinds of questions. This is even true for neural networks where the how is in fact blindingly complex. And so the tagline, especially in news articles is always, we don't know how it's learning, but it is. The technology is always defined by human rules and algorithms and the bodies of text, which makes up the curriculum that they learn from. Mm -hmm. The result of this over decades is increasingly eloquent lambdas. And that's fine. That's exactly what we're going for. Mm -hmm. We focus our efforts on building the rules such as the HAL 9000s of the future will follow. This form of research is showing huge amount of progress year over year, which Lambda is a case in point. Already AI is being used to supplant help desks and support personnel. And these systems have existed for a while, even as simple as press one for the finance department, <laughs> press two for engineering, right? press three to engage in a slow death. <laughs> you were already I said it out loud. <laughs> And every single system that has ever existed has always been met with the complaint of, I want to talk to a real person. This computer doesn't understand me. So the people that build these automated response systems have a huge, huge incentive to build a system like Lambda that sounds like it understands you. Right. 
And the result is chatbot technology that sounds conversational to our sensitive anthropomorphizing eyes. It can sound conscious. Right. And there's certainly been occasions where I've used the chat functionality of a support website and I've been uncertain whether I was speaking to a chatbot or an actual person. And ultimately, what I realized is I don't care. Because if I get the support that I need, it doesn't matter whether it was an AI chatbot or a, a real human being, I just need my problem resolved. And I don't also don't care if that AI is conscious or not. Right, which is the same situation that we find ourselves in when we call Microsoft's 1-800 number. Ouch. So the goal of AI is to get the answers that you need. The right answers. Ideally. <laughs> when, well, I mean, this is really important because when you think about where AI is going to make the news in high-risk type of situations, the question is not about consciousness. It's about consequences. Mm-hmm. One easy example to talk about is AI ethics in self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. So everybody's favorite example, let's talk about the trolley problem. <sighs> assume the car can't stop. Also assume that you can't open the doors and you can't weasel out of this logical experiment in any way. Fine. Would it be better for a self-driving car to plow into a crowd of people, killing many, or would it be better to drive the car off a cliff, killing only the driver. And if you really want to push the metaphor, causing the car, if it's self-aware, to sacrifice itself. What is the ethical thing to program the car to do? Would it be better or worse if the car was conscious? And what would we make of a car that made the, quote, wrong decision? Right, because the assumption here is if the car is in fact conscious, then it understands mora morality. And it's no longer making a determination based off of fixed rules in the system. It is now making a moral decision about what is right and what is wrong. That's right. actually way scarier than just having a, a non-conscious AI following the rules that we've set out for it. Yeah, and the reality is, if and when we get to a point where that car can make that kind of decision, what is the car purchaser going to pick? <laughs> and, and, and to what degree uh, is the manufacturer then liable for the decisions that the car makes? And if the car is truly conscious, do we have to recognize it as a legal entity? And if it makes an improper moral decision, could you try it for manslaughter? Right. I, I, I don't have the answer to these questions. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm just like these are the ethic, the conundrums that you find yourself in when you start assigning consciousness and self awareness to what is actually just a very advanced program. Right. And the reality is, we're not going to develop a truly conscious AI for a couple of reasons. One, because it's technically impossible, but two, because as consumers, we don't want truly conscious AI. We want predictably excellent results. AI works as in such as it does because it treats the queries as puzzles to be solved or games to be won. I do want to posit one thing here where we might want true 
AI. And that would be in the form of entertainment like pets. Because we already have something like this. And it's the pets we have in our house today. Gen I mean, you can put animals to work. But when you think about how most people enjoy pets today, whether it's a dog or a cat or, God help you, a turtle, they're not there to solve a problem. They're there as a companion. They're there for comfort. They're, they're there for entertainment. But they're certainly not there to solve a problem. And so there is the potential that we would want to develop AI for consumers in that specific niche. But yes, in the more general realm of AI, where you are set, setting out to solve a problem, you don't want something that has a consciousness and can make these weird moralistic decisions. It needs to be predictable. Right. And even in the case that you're making, I would argue that a sufficiently advanced AI would be indistinguishable from magic, to steal a pretty famous phrase. Yeah, I mean, people loved, if, was it the Ibo? Was that the... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that thing was not particularly advanced, and that just speaks to the degree to which we can anthropomorphize anything. Right. And we can have affection for things that are clearly not conscious. I'm thinking back on my history of cat and dog ownership and remembering a few, is it, are we still allowed to call them dim bulbs? <laughs> the lights possibly. were on, the cat food got eaten, but nobody was home. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's what AI does. You know, it evaluates options, discards the bad options until it decides it's found a good option and then it executes. And the way that I, AI has developed over time is how fast can we do this? You know, even the fun example that people love to say is like, you know, we put a, we put a man on the moon with a computer that wasn't even as powerful as the Casio watch on your wrist, mm -hmm. which at the time was true, even though it's an, an apples to oranges comparison. You can think the same exact way about AI. Like the computer that was deep blue that beat Gary Kasparov in that rigged chess match. Yes, it was rigged. There, I said it. Um, that computer is now massively overpowered by even the cheapest laptop. And if you download a, a chess program off the internet, it's going to beat every human being who's on the planet right now. The difference in computing power and in the uh, creativity of the algorithms that they use has gone leaps and bounds in the past 25 years. Mm -hmm. It really is a marvel to behold. And if you want to see it actually happening, we have some interesting AI programs that exist where you can watch the decision-making process in action. One of the ones that we've talked about on this very show is DALI, the AI-based natural processor of images. What you do is punch in a prompt, hit enter, Dolly thinks about it for a while and spits out nine ideas of which you can look at and select one. And some of the stuff that Dolly comes up with is bananas. It's awesome. You do it a hundred times though, and you're going to come up with a piece of artwork or design or whatever you want to call it that works. And this is the computer just throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks but you will get a result that sticks. Multiply that by a billion options completed in less than a millisecond, and you have the computing power that backs most AI right now.
But if you want to see it a slower way, uh, another example is in 2019, some researchers tried to get AI to invent a sport. The resultant game is called Speedgate, which I'm assuming the computer also invented the name, which is, quote, a fast-moving game in which players throw or kick a rugby training ball to teammates but can't run with or carry the ball. The objective is to move the ball through a gate in the center of the playing field. I won't spend too much time on it, but there is a video and it does seem kind of fun. All right. But there is a trial and error process to this because they just threw inputs at it and see what sticks to the wall. One of the initial outputs was a quote, version of tennis, two players hitting a ball back and forth, but they're balancing on a tightrope that's being elevated in the air by two hot air balloons. Is that bananas? Yes. Yes. Would I also watch that? Definitely. 100%. I, I might watch that uh, more than any other sporting thing that is on the televisions today. I mean, if you need a flagship sports program for ESPN, ESPN 8, the Ocho, the I think this is it. Now, remember Deep Blue we just talked about? The yeah. computer that became famous for beating Gary Kasparov? After that success, do you know what happened to that computer? It went on to play a lot more chess. It went on to become an airline reservation management system server. That sounds about right. Handling passengers on an airline was just the next game. The same thing with Lambda. Communicating as though it were a fellow human was just the next game. The game was completed, obviously, at least according to Blake, but that's it. That's what AI is, and that is all it ever will be. The only way to win is not to play. Are all of your references from 1980? I uh, No, some of them are from 1984. <laughs> Wait, the book or? Yes. <laughs> I don't I don't think War Games was 1980. I think you're wrong about that. No, it was in the 80s, but it wasn't 1980. 83. I was close. I I, I was going to say 83 and then I said 84 cuz I wanted to make the book joke. Ah, damn it. Why doesn't the world line up with my jokes? That could be a problem more with your jokes than with the world. Shut up. Lightning rounds. <laughs> Internet Explorer is dead. But we'll never die. There's no stopping what can't be stopped. No killing what can't be killed. Another 80s movie. You're welcome. Support and patches for Internet Explorer will officially stop on June 15th, 2022. Which, if you're listening to this and not a time traveler, that date has already passed. Now, it doesn't mean IE11 is going to evaporate into the ether but it will no longer be included in new versions of Windows and you won't get patches for current versions unless you are running Windows 7 ESU or a corporate flavor of Windows 10. The first version of Internet Explorer was shipped way back in 1995 as part of the Windows 95 Plus Pack, something you had to pay for. At the time, it was licensed from Spyglass Software who got a cut of what you paid for the Windows Plus pack. And that in turn had been taken from the Mosaic 
browser, which is what the uh, Netscape Navigator was created to kill. Did you know that Mozilla is the mosaic killer? That's how they got the name. Little fun fact there for you. So anyway, it was tweaked to work on Windows. And then Microsoft turned around and baked Internet Explorer directly into Windows 98, making it free and cheating Spyglass out of money. That's just kind of a nice, nice. Uh, example of how Microsoft conducted themselves at the time. At the height of its power, IE commanded more than 70% of the browser market and introduced a swath of proprietary extensions like ActiveX, leveraging their power as the dominant browser to lock developers and their clients into the IE ecosystem. And that lock-in has had long-term effects. Some companies are feeling those effects to this very day. As someone who had to keep IE7 running on a fleet of virtual machines for a particularly persnickety financial application, it doesn't matter that IE has less than 1% of market share and is now end of life. It shall continue to live on for eternity. Forever and ever. Amen. Man, I just got a chill. <laughs> HP releases Dev1 laptop pre-installed with Pop OS Linux. I'm having a hard time understanding how to pronounce this because it's Pop exclamation point underscore OS. Sigh. Why? Why do you do this to me? <laughs> <clears throat> Is it the year of the Linux desktop? Again? Hmm. Well, spoiler alert, it's not. This is still a major and interesting step forward. HP, a big manufacturer of many consumer-facing devices, has on their website an HP laptop that comes pre-installed with not just a Linux, but a Linux that is specifically and built and tuned for this hardware. This means that all drivers, programs, and yes, repositories will work perfectly and immediately and be easily maintainable going forward. The laptop hardware itself looks to be of a high quality build, if not at the absolute razor's edge of performance. The compromise though helps keep the price down. $1,099 for a 14 inch HD monitor with an eight core Ryzen 7, 16 gigs of DDR4 RAM, and a one terabyte PCIe3 hard drive. Although you can't upgrade these specs on the HP store site, you can upgrade the RAM and hard drive capacities yourself, an ability that other companies that shall remain nameless, but actually are Apple, are trying quite hard to remove. Pop! OS is a six-year-old Ubuntu derivative built and maintained by System76, specifically intended to be a, quote, desktop-first distribution. As such, Pop is well-regarded and becoming quite popular in the we are damn tired of Windows and Apple and want something that just works crowd. Time will tell if this leads to more collaborations between HP and System76 in the future. And frankly, here's to hoping. Indeed. System76 themselves actually make laptops as well. They do. I think the thing that this really drives the point home is that HP can build a million laptops. Mm -hmm. System 76 right now cannot. 
they they're some of their laptops have been out of stock for quite some time because I tried to get yeah. one a while ago. Uh, I also want to bring up a long time ago, Dell used to offer a laptop that had Ubuntu pre-installed on it. Mm-hmm. Not nearly as well supported as this, and you had to dig through some uh, dank corners of their website to find it. But they did yeah, have you it. Had to work. Yeah, had to work for <laughs> it. Had to work for it. All right. RFC 1925, rule number 11, and I quote, every old idea will be proposed again with a different name and a different presentation, regardless of whether it works, end quote. Read the whole thing. <laughs> Courtesy of Web3 is going just great. We have drama brewing between the Solana coin and Solend lending protocol. Now, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but essentially, essentially Solend is a lending protocol that allows a Solana token holder to use their tokens as collateral for a token on a separate platform through decentralized finance lending. I just fell asleep. I know. So a particularly big Solana holder, AKA a whale, used 5.7 million Solana coins, which is the equivalent of about $170 million, to stake out a loan of $108 million in a separate stablecoin. Now, if Solana drops below a certain price, a liquidation will automatically occur of those Solana coins through bots that will overwhelm the Solana network and possibly cause a cascading failure. I think that's bad. So to prevent this possibility, the DAO, uh, that's a thing, the DAO governing Solend voted to temporarily seize control of the whale's account. Didn't know that was allowed, but apparently it is. And switched the trade to over-the-counter exchanges instead of the lending protocol. The vote passed by a very narrow margin with a different whale providing the majority of the votes. Now that doesn't sound very decentralized, now does it? Twitter was immediately on fire with DeFi crypto bros calling foul and demanding a reversal of this unprecedented action, which appears to have happened with the Solent DAO announcing that they held and passed a second vote to find an alternate solution. I guess that's good? Honestly, who can tell? The main takeaway here is that decentralized finance is neither decentralized nor really finance. <laughs> the crypto bros are trying to reinvent a banking system and tripping over the exact same stumbling blocks as those who came before. Who could have predicted this? Oh, that's right. People who know anything about finance. Elon Musk addresses Twitter employees, makes more enemies by being himself. <sighs> What's it been like? 4,000 years since Elon Musk got super high and popped off at the mouth about buying Twitter? Well, now that it's likely that he can't weasel out of it, he decided to address the Twitter staff in a Q&A. As expected, he had no concrete plans and only vague opinions. Employees said they had a hard time hearing Musk, who appeared to be video conferencing in from his phone from a hotel room. What he wants is to free people to tweet outrageous things but also for average users to go up from 230 million to 1 billion. He wants to boost revenue through ads, but also for ads not to be scammy. 
All this, and he's planning on trimming staff so that Twitter can, quote, get healthy. He admitted to buying something from a YouTube ad, and that something didn't work as advertised. The fact that he was surprised by this should get him disqualified from being the leader of anything ever. Oh, and also, he doesn't want to take any responsibility or the title of CEO. Quote, there's a lot of chores if you're the CEO, he said. I don't really care what the title is, but obviously, people do need to listen to me. Obviously. The employees who had to endure this pretentious leadership masquerade savaged it in a private Slack chat. A private Slack chat, which was then promptly leaked, unredacted by an Elon Dubro. In a telling example of exactly what Musk supporters really think about free speech, the GQP contingent thought it was great because now Elon had a list of people who spoke their minds and thus could be then summarily fired. You know, exactly like what Musk did at SpaceX. SpaceX employees, as you'll remember, wrote an open letter to Musk asking him to rein in his ridiculous behavior. And Musk, the self-declared free speech absolutist, absolutely fired them. <laughs> All around a proud day for him and his family. Hmm. Isovalent open sources Tetragon to leverage eBPF for security. Whew, got through it. Isovalent, the company behind the open source project Cilium, has open sourced their Tetragon project as well. Originally, a closed sourced portion of their Cilium enterprise paid offering, Tetragon leverages eBPF with the Linux kernel to monitor and secure security policies in kernel space instead of user space. Just like Celium, the use of eBPF allows Tetragon deeper access to what is going on in a Kubernetes host node and allows it to monitor multiple namespaces, trace function calls, and validate kernel-specific operations. Additionally, the eBPF integration lets Tetragon apply actions in kernel space, making it more efficient and less resource intensive. Tetragon can hook into policies from Kubernetes CRDs, open policy agents, or even a JSON-based API. While the fancier bells and whistles for both Celium and Tetragon are only available in the Celium Enterprise version, an enterprising Linux admin could leverage both for free assuming they don't mind managing the control plane themselves. If you're working with Kubernetes from a security perspective, Tetragon is an essential tool to add to your OPSEC tool belt. Also, I'll just note for the audience that Ned actually spelled this Tetragon at sure least four did. times. <laughs> Thanks. Happy to help. Pavel Zadrozniak, wow. apologies on that pronunciation, releases the Flopatron 3.0 and what have I been doing with my life? The Flopatron has to be my favorite bizarro creative project on the internet. It is a quote noise orchestra built out of discarded computer hardware and capable of playing MIDI music. This, the third iteration, plays music of a quality that would be well at home on a Nintendo game or even a Super Nintendo using only the sounds of the devices functioning. What kind of devices, you ask? Well, the Flopatron 3.0 is made up of 512 floppy disk drives, 
four flatbed scanners, and 16 hard disk drives. And that's it. Seriously, this thing is amazing. There are tons of details on how it works on the linked blog post, along with a YouTube video that is three minutes and 25 seconds of pure delight. It is a refreshing reminder of the possibilities out there. Sure, the world can create scum and villainy on an Elon Musk scale anytime, but it's also still capable of producing the Floppatron. Mm, that warms my heart that I definitely have. Uh, last item, Cloud Field Day 14 is live this week. And uh, someone very foolishly let me and Chris attend this thing. <laughs> so later this week, we will be recording in California on different podcasting hardware. So that's exciting. That's California, America. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for the correction, just in case anybody was curious. So yes, uh, if you are interested in cloudy things and hearing what vendors have to say and then hearing Chris and I criticize them for saying things that are dumb, tune in. It'll be fun. Links are in the show notes. Hey, thanks for listening or something. I, I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. And if you had a time machine, you could live the glory of today, tomorrow, and every day hence. So get cracking. Carpe diem indeed. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80 respectively, or follow the show at chaos underscore lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at chaoslever.com if you like reading things. I don't. That's why I pay Adam Sandler to read everything to me in his spooky voice. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now.